Do you guys know the difference between discouragement and despair? Discouragement, I mean, we all have those moments, let's face it. We all have those moments where we get discouraged. We hit our low points most of the thing, most of the time that's in reaction to the things we see around us or the things that we are personally going through. We all will go through those moments or times of discouragement, but discouragement is, is temporary and we hopefully bounce back from discouragement. Despair is a different story. Despair is, as the dictionary defines it, a complete loss or absence of hope. A Christian can certainly be discouraged. It's natural to face discouragement. But a Christian should not, and dare I say, cannot give in to despair. Why? Well, go back to the definition of despair. It's saying that then there's no hope. It's saying that we've resigned ourselves to the fact that things are just not going to get better. That there is no way that God will redeem this situation. That God doesn't see what's going on. That God doesn't care. That God won't do anything to fix the problem. Look at all the evil in the world today. And we just despair and say, God will never do anything. And that's just not a biblical worldview, church. It's just not what God gives us in his word. And Psalm 36 has much to teach us this morning. Thank you, Bob, for reading that. We are spending the summer in Psalms. Uh, if you're visiting with us today, which several of you are, thank you so much for visiting with us today. Uh, we preach expositionally, which means hopefully the main point of my sermon should match the main point of the passage. I'm not going to import my own ideas and read them into the text. I don't have original ideas. They're from the Word, and so hopefully we will see what that is today. And we took a break. Uh, recently, we did a three-week series in Defending the Faith, and before that, we were in Matthew. Now we're in Psalms. I know I'm bouncing around a little bit, but we have a plan. How we ended up in Psalm 36 is that we have been going through the Psalms uh, here and there in the summers. Uh, last, last summer, I was on sabbatical, so you guys just kept plowing ahead with Matthew, which was great, but summers before that, we were in Psalms, and we were up to Psalm 36. So in case you're wondering where we got that, we left off there in August of 2020. We've got a nice little flow to this psalm. It breaks up neatly into three sections, the state of the world, the perfection of God, and the prayer, the petition of the psalmist. Look again with me at Psalm 36 just to refresh our memory. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. And he does not reject evil. Our superscript at the beginning of this psalm, which is actually in the original language. Sometimes in the New Testament, you'll see section headings and things. Those are not, but in the psalms, the superscripts are in the original language, and we see that this is for the choir master, the psalm of David. The psalms were Israel's songbook. They chronicle their, their history. The psalms chronicle their ups and downs, the cries from their soul, the, the rejoicing of God's work, the wonder and the depth of who he is. The Hebrew in the first couple verses of Psalm 36 is a complete disaster, which is why if you have a bunch of different translations, you might see it a bunch of different ways because really smart people with thick glasses and patches on their elbows, it's, this is hard, it's difficult. It could say a couple different things. 
say it a couple different ways, should I say. What it's saying is that sin is not really something that is done, but it's something that someone is. People are sinners because they reject God. And sin is, as it were, written on the walls of their hearts. It's all they know. Why? And the back half of verse 1 tells us, it says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is not the usual Hebrew word for fear, as in fear of the Lord and reverent holiness and all that sort of stuff. It's more along the lines of just dread. It's more along the lines of that God won't see me. That God won't do, even if God does exist, he's not going to judge me. I don't have any fear of that guy. If he even does exist, I have no dread. I have no regard for God as judge. They don't think there's a chance in the world at all, if God even does exist, that they would be punished for their sin because they don't see it as sin. Our text told us that. It's important to note that this just isn't really bad people. We read things like this and we say, yeah, that must be like the really bad people in the world, the Osama bin Ladens or the, the Hitlers or, you know, mass murderers or shooters or something like that, but it's not. We know that this is every single one of us. We know that all of us are born sinners, separated from God, knowing only sin in our hearts, and we are sinners by nature. Thank you, Adam and Eve. And we are sinners by choice. We have all in our own way, the Bible tells us, gone astray and rejected God. Paul proves this point by quoting this very verse in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. I'll read that for us. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And watch it. Here's our, here's our passage. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul calls upon this very passage and puts it together with a couple other passages to prove the point of what we call total depravity, that we are sinners separated from God, that that is our default identity. This is the same chapter as famously Paul writes, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so before we're tempted to think that this is just the really bad people that we might know in history, the Bible makes it clear that it's not. The Bible makes it clear that this is all of us. One commentator notes that this passage teaches us that we sin with our hearts in verses 1 and 2, our lips in verse 3, and our hands in verse 4. In short, as Bob prayed or mentioned in his prayer, we are sinners in thought, word, and deed. Does that sound like our culture in 2022 America all around us? I thought so too. The net translation Again, another translation, another run at this kind of difficult Hebrew said it this way. An evil man is rebellious to the core. He does not fear God, for he is too proud to recognize and give up his sin. Sinners don't even recognize what they're doing as sin. They don't classify it as sin. They don't care. 
Church Father Ambrose wrote that the sinner's inner conscience is mangled. The sinner is so consumed with sin that verse 4 says that before he falls asleep at night, he doesn't think of all the good things he's going to do the next day. He thinks of how he's going to sin the next day, how I'm going to plot, I'm plotting evil for the next day. In fact, our passage tells us that his whole trajectory is bad and there's no evil that he rejects. He's committed to his sinful lifestyle, shaking his fist in the face of God and his law. So maybe I can say it this way. For those who reject God, sin isn't an activity, it's an identity. For those who reject God, sin isn't an activity, it's an identity. Now, of course, it is something that we do with action, but it's more something that's our own selves. And again, we can feel ourselves kind of push back on that. Like, everybody, though? Like, even the nice old ladies that don't know Jesus? Everybody? Yeah, Everybody who continues to reject God. I'm sure people have varying degrees of being under the control of evil, right? There are degrees of sin. There are degrees of people who are in varying control, under control of evil in some way. We might have unbelievers that we know that seem like very good people. But it's a heart condition. It's an identity. Some sins, of course, are more serious than others, but this is where the identity versus activity different comes into play. Because they're sinners, they are apart from God and destined for his wrath. It's, it's their identity. One theologian said that all sin isn't as equally damaging, but it's all equally damning. In the sense that, yes, there are degrees of sin. There's, there's not all sin is as equally damaging but all sin is equally damning. We're damned and destined to hell for our sin. This is our identity by birth. Again, thank you, Adam. We're sinners by nature. And we've all proven this with the concept of our own lives, mostly by the time we were two or three, right? We've talked about it before. Original sin, one theologian said, is the only uh, doctrine that you can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt. And if there are any parents, you know that for sure because you never had to teach them to lie or to steal or to hit or to yell or disrespect or do any of that. It's just in them. They're cute little sinners, aren't they? Do we not see this in the world around us, though, with grown-ups, with adults? It's everywhere. I continue to point to the abortion debate because it's everywhere we go right now. It's the top moral issue in America right now, and it's directly against God's law. There's no amount of rationalization that will make it okay, and yet people do what? They fight and they cry out in the street for the right to murder their children or to bring their children to someone else to murder. For those who reject God, sin isn't an activity, it's an identity. And it's a progressive identity. Sin is progressive. It consumes more and more of culture. It consumes more and more of the person individually. We see that in Scripture as well. Ephesians 4, therefore I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts, Gentiles meaning unbelievers, right? They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity and watch this with a desire for more and more. That's what we see in our culture. You ever have those moments where you just got to be like, what, what, 
What am I watching right now? What am I looking at on TV? People crying aloud to murder their children? What is going on? For desire for more and more and more. That's what sin does. It's progressive. This is the spiritual reality that most people are totally blind to. When they reject God as king in their life, they do their thing. They're darkened in their understanding. They're not walking in God's way. Their hearts are hardened to the truth. They're calloused. They give themselves over to evil with a continuing appetite for more and more. Sin always wants more. So if this is the state of the world, right, now that I've totally depressed everybody, right, if this is the state of the world, then what's the opposite? It's the perfection and goodness of God. Good verse 5. Your steadfast love. I wish David would have put a big, giant butt in here in the Hebrew, but he didn't. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God, and your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. It's quite the contrast, isn't it? We just made a right turn all of a sudden. We we're talking about the depths of the depravity of sin, and now David goes, but yes, look at who God is. He uses the example of creation to try and get his mind around the perfection of God. His steadfast, this is the, the famous Hebrew word chesed. I went, to he, I went to seminary to learn how to say that, chesed. It's this big, thick Hebrew word that doesn't really have a word in English. That's why different translations say it's steadfast love, it's loyalty, it's the depth of his covenant commitment. It's just all of who he is. It's impossible for him to be anything else other than faithful. It's who he is. His steadfast, his faithful, his loyal love, it reaches to the heavens. How far is that? I don't know. You can't measure that far. That's the point. His faithfulness to the clouds, his righteousness as high as the mountains, his judgments are as deep as the ocean. It's a language we're not really familiar with, right? And David, it's, it's beautiful, it's poetic. His point is you can't measure any of these things. They're infinite. You can't measure how high the heavens are or the sky is. You can't measure how perfect God is in all of these ways. God is as perfect. Here's the contrast, right? God is as perfect in his sinlessness as the sinners are perfect in their sinfulness. The depths of the depravity of the sinner is only matched in increasing exponential ways by the depth of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. It's better than that as God doesn't keep all this perfection to himself. He shares it with everyone on earth. Keep this in mind, even to those who reject him. Look at verse 7. It says, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You've given them drink from the river of your delights. The psalmist can barely control himself. He's like, how amazing is your love? How precious, how priceless. The children of mankind, in other words, watch this, every single person on the face of the earth, everywhere they take refuge. Where? In your protection. Imagery, again, of, of a bird sheltering her young with her wings. They feast on the abundance of what? Your house. They drink from what? The river of your delights. Verse 9 tells us that God is the source 
and the fountain of life. I didn't read verse 9. It's like my favorite verse. For with us, or for with you, is the fountain of life. And watch this. In your light do we see light. God is the fountain of life. And in your light, he says, do we even see light? Do we even know what light is? We don't even know what light is unless God gives that light. It's pervasive. It's like when the sun comes up in the morning, right? I was thinking about the other day because it wasn't that sunny outside, but yet the sun had come up in our bedroom, and yet light just permeates everything. That's what the psalmist is saying, that God's light, that's how we see everything in God. And every day, church, millions and millions of people walk around under the banner of God's protection and God's provision and God's sustaining grace, never giving it a second thought. You put this together again with the first section. Even to those who shake their fist at the sky and taunt God and say, come and judge me if you're even there. He's giving them a perfect banner of provision and grace in order to do that. Let me say it this way. God is perfect in his provision and grace. And so we see the contrast of the first part being the depths of the depravity of sin and their identity. But then the second part of God being perfect in his provision and his grace. And think back again to verses 1 through 4. What air does the sinner breathe when he's cursing God? God's air. It's amazing he's not a, a pile of smoldering dust, right? The grace of God. Who gave them the brain in their heads to think about all these things and plan evil? Who gave them the strength in their bodies to go and do evil? Who gave them, let's, let's start from the very beginning, huh? Who gave them life to begin with? Who gave them existence? Who brought them into this world? Who gave them life? And what do they do with it? They turn and they reject God and they spit in the face of the creator who made them. And parents, depending on our situation, right, we can, we can feel some of this sometimes, right, with our kids. Sometimes we can feel like, I literally didn't let you die, right? I literally kept you alive. I carried you for, not, not me, I carried you for nine months, right? It was uncomfortable, it was hot, it was summer, can I get an amen, right? <laughs> And then I, I was up with you when you were sick, and I was there every single second of the day, and I nourished you, and I cherished you, and I watched you grow, and I fought for you, and you're going to turn and curse me? Don't we feel that a little bit, parents, sometimes? And we feel just a fraction, just a fraction of what it must be like for God and his creation. And the people that he brought into existence and the air that he put in their lungs and the pulse he put in their veins rejects him. Every single one of them. And yet, he continues to provide for them and sustain them. Matthew says, or Jesus says in, in Matthew 5.45, he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is what theologians call common grace. One guy defines it as God giving people innumerable blessings that are not, not part of salvation. We're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about the fact that for every single person on the planet Earth, whether you love God or hate God, the sun comes up and shines on you, and you get to experience those things. 
in Acts, Paul talks about it with Barnabas at, at Lystra in Acts 14, 17. Paul says this, Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul's saying, hey, guys, guess what? The very banner of the thing that you are standing on, God provided for you. That should be a witness to you. Where do you think sunny days came from? Where do you think good food and good drink and relationships come from? Where do you think happiness and joy come from, relationships and sex and all of that stuff. Where do you think that came from? It came from the very God that you're rejecting. He says, this is supposed to be a witness to you. This is supposed to be like a, a light bulb that's supposed to go off in your head. He didn't leave you without a witness because all these things scream that there's a creator and he's good and he loves us. He's a perfect provider. And back in our text in Psalm 36, 9, is for, for because, rather, you are the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. When we look through the world with a, a biblical God-centered worldview, we see how things work, and we see, most importantly, who has made them work. We take our eyes off ourselves for just a few moments and realize, like, the scales fall from our eyes and God, you provided all this. I mean, it's a beautiful top 10 day outside right now. God provided that. It's supposed to point back to him. You think he continues, and, he, and well, we know he continues to provide this perfect canopy of provision under where this, under this perfect canopy of provision, people still shake their fists at God. It's rather insane, isn't it? When we think about it. It should really end up in one of two ways. Either we bow the knee to God and give him the worship that he deserves as king, or else there's going to be a time when that mercy runs out. God's mercy and gracious provision does have an expiration date. The psalmist knows this, which is why he ends this psalm with a, a desperate prayer. Look at verse 10. He says, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. The, the psalmist overflows again. Oh, continue again. There's our Hebrew word. Your steadfast love, your faithfulness, your covenant loyalty. Continue that, Lord. He recognizes the perfect love of God and he begs him to continue. But then he adds a distinction, a very, very important distinction. He says, continue your steadfast love and your gracious provision to who? Those who know you. And your righteousness to who? To the upright of heart. There's a distinction made. There's a line drawn in the sand. There's a real difference between those who know God and act like they know God and those who reject God and don't care about God. And David is asking God to continue his gracious provision to those who know God and act like it. And inferred in that is a request to then, therefore, discontinue your perfect love to those who reject you. And doing one better, please protect, protect us from them. Please protect the righteous 
from the unrighteous. He asked God to protect them from evil. He says, don't let the arrogant, the wicked harm me. Don't let the wicked drive me away. So he asks for continued provision from God for those who know God, but he also asks for protection from those who reject God. A lot of theologians think Psalm 35 and 36 were once one. That's why if we look back at 35, maybe verse 1, we see David again. Contend, O Lord. Contend with those who contend against me. Fight against those who fight against me. He's saying this is your fight. This is your battle ultimately, Lord. Fight against the wicked. And he goes one step further. At the end of our psalm in verse 36, he dreams of the day when evil will be defeated. Verse 12, he tells us, there the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. The wicked evildoers are dead. They lie fallen, unable to rise again. Finally, they are defeated. Now, in immediate context, of course, this is probably the physical enemies of Israel, the physical enemies of God coming against David and coming against God and his kingdom. We get that. But there's also then the fuller expression of what that means. Because those nations were not raging against just Israel. Those nations were raging against Yahweh. Those nations were raging against God himself. And we see ourselves in that exact same position today as we have throughout history, and we will until the Lord comes back. And so we know that evil will have a day where they are judged. Since all of Scripture tells that one story, we can look at this in the larger context and say with David, how we long for that day, church. We long for that day where we don't turn on the news and we don't roll our eyes and we don't sigh and groan and we don't have to fight despair. One day evil will be judged. One day evil will be defeated when Christ returns and provides his perfect kingdom. But for now, we rejoice in the perfect provision of him as our savior who defeated evil through his life, his death, and his resurrection. That's the gospel. That's the heart of all this how we can stand in this. And, but still, the psalmist's point is very clear. God will one day judge those who continue to sit and grow fat and complacent under the very hand of provision that God provides and reject him. Here's the point. God will eventually judge those who continue to reject him. God will eventually judge those who continue to reject him. The psalmist makes it clear. This won't go on for, forever. For those of us who seek to follow God and, and be legit in a world that is going mad, this is comforting, isn't it? Evil has an expiration date. Evil will not and cannot have the last word. Because I don't know if you felt it, but I, I get a little tense, maybe, maybe upset reading this psalm and the perfect goodness of God giving grace and provision for the wicked to do what? continue to reject him it does something inside me it fires me up it just makes makes me angry when i think about that and i think about how much more god must be yet he stays his hand in grace and provision still holding out the hope of salvation in jesus christ but it won't go on forever God will con won't continue to provide the rains and the fruit and the food and the sunshine to those who continue to reject him. In fact, this whole time, as he is providing for them, as Paul pointed out in Acts, why? So that they would think about it, they would realize what's going on, they would stop, they would turn, they would realize their spiritual condition, they would repent, and they would come running to God. 
the one who provides that grace and provision. But that grace period can't go on forever. We know that from the Bible. And sometimes acts, or God acts in judgment on people right here in this life, but we know he's always going to act in judgment in the next. We know there will be that day. That's called judgment day. It's a terrifying thought to think that every person will stand before God and give an account. And some people will continue to reject him until the moment that they stand before him. And then they will know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Didn't they realize again who provided all of that stuff for them to survive? They added insult to injury by using the very resources in the life God provided them to reject him and spread not righteousness, but sin and evil throughout the world. We studied Romans 1 a few weeks ago, and the same principle applies here. God gave them all of creation to scream his existence. Creation screams that there's a creator, so much so that Romans 1 told us that no one can stand before God and have an excuse but it will be too late because judgment will be upon them. And I'm stealing from a future sermon in September, but Jesus talks about this in Matthew 25. There are two kinds of people. This, this, what the psalm brings us to is the, the realization that there's two kinds of people spiritually that will stand before God in judgment, those that know him and those that reject him, or as Jesus famously said, the sheep and the goats. Look at Matthew 25, verses 31, this is Jesus speaking. When the Son of Man, that's him, comes in his glory, again, at the end of the world, right, to judge, and with all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. And if we jump down to verse 41, what does he say to the goats? He says, those on the left, he will say, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal life or eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is Jesus talking, church. This is what the psalm is pointing to. You're either going to know and recognize that it's God, the one who's providing all these things for you. That's God, the one that has that steadfast love that's going to continue. That's God, the one that's given you a way to escape his wrath in Jesus Christ. Or you're going to continue to shake your fist in his face until judgment day. And then there will be a separation. Just like David is saying, there's a difference between those who know God and those who reject God. And this whole psalm is one giant contrast of those two. So here's the big idea. God will protect those who know him, but punish those who reject him. God will protect those who know him, but punish those who reject him. The psalm speaks of two audiences on the very opposite ends of the spiritual spectrum. So church, for those of us who know God, Christians, believers, brothers and sisters, those who have consciously turned from their sin and turned towards Christ Jesus in repentance and faith, this is our encouragement. Be encouraged in the faithful, loyal, steadfast love that God has for you, his children. David is amazed by this. 
Stop and think about the depths of love that God has for you, his children. Count the blessings and the little things we take for granted, like the sun rising every day and the air that we breathe and the bodies that God gave us. And and when we see evil, when we see the wicked railing against God, with no fear of him before their eyes, not even recognizing what they do as sinful. Remember, God sees it too. It's not our job to add wrath to God's wrath. Okay? Trinity's closed. We don't need a junior Holy Spirit. God sees evil. He says, vengeance is mine. It's natural that we get upset when we see it, but remember, God sees it. Think of the perfect grace the perfect provision of God, even to those who shake their fists. There's something comforting about that. There's something both simultaneously enraging and comforting about that, right? We're like, we're like enraged. It's just like, oh my gosh, why didn't he just zap these people, right? But then there's the other thing. is like, look at the grace of God that he doesn't. Look at the grace, the depth of his grace. And there's the other audience in this psalm, the wicked those who reject God, those with no fear of the judgment of God. And if that is you this morning, if you, first of all, thank you for coming. Praise God. If, you have, if you're continuing to reject God, beware. This is what the psalmist says is coming for those who continue to reject God. This is what Jesus said is coming. Judgment is coming. It's a myth. It's a fallacy. Don't buy the lie that God does not exist and there is no judgment coming. Don't buy the lie that we should have no fear of God before our eyes. We have to realize who he is. That's the spiritual reality that hangs in the balance while we're all distracted with shiny things in this life, right? But church, we have a specific calling in this psalm. We should be full of joy. We should be full of encouragement and the steadfast love of our God and the gracious provision that he gives us that we enjoy every day. We should be full of confidence in his protection from the wicked. But yet under the banner of these things, we have much work to do, don't we? In a culture that continues its trajectory away from God, just like the psalmist told us, we must remain faithful. We need to resist despair when we read the news. We must remember that God sees all evil, that God has a plan. Don't give in to despair. When we are in the midst of a personal circumstance where it's one thing after the other, where we're just getting hammered from all sides, please don't give in to despair. Remember the steadfast love and faithfulness of our God. Resist despair when we read the news or we check our Twitter or we see the comment streams on Facebook. We must resist to despair at the state of the world. We can be discouraging, or it can be discouraging, and we can be discouraged. Yet despair and discouragement are two completely different things. Despair is a throwing up of the hands in an absence of all hope, and we know better than that. We know that God is our hope. Despair is that why bother attitude. The world is going to hell in a rocket ship. What are we going to do about it? That's not a biblical worldview. Psalm 36 encourages us in the steadfast love and gracious provision of our God and reminds us that God sees all. God is the one who is most offended, yet God is the one who gives the most grace and the most steadfast love even to those who reject him. 
We need to rest, we need to trust, we need to live, we need to persevere, knowing that God will protect us from those that are against him and knowing that he lives to make salvation for those who have come to him in faith. Let us not despair. Let us be encouraged as we seek to live out this mission that we've been called to, bringing glory to him by making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, this psalm is difficult for us in the sense of we see just the, the heart view of the wicked. But Lord, let us, let us realize that. And, and we pray if there are those here that have still not um, submitted to you as Savior and Lord, that they would not continue to reject you, that they would realize you do exist, that you are a holy God, that there is something to fear in your judgment. And, and then we're unbelievable provision in Jesus Christ for salvation and forgiveness and restoration and adoption and all of that can be theirs by faith. And we pray that they would turn to you in faith. But Lord, for us, for your children, for those who have been adopted into your family through faith, for those who have been covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, Lord, encourage our hearts. When we're tempted to despair, when we're in those moments of discouragement and we look at the state of the world and we lament like David does in the first four verses of this psalm. When we look at our lives and we see one thing after the other that's seemingly going wrong and we get discouraged, Lord, protect us from despair. Protect us from the wicked. Protect us from sin and fix our hope on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who sees all, who loves us and continues to provide for us until the very day that he returns where we will be with him forever and evil will lie fallen, and we will be with you in perfection. Keep us steadfast, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.